right. Happy Fourth of July to everybody. Everybody have a good uh, fireworks Independence Day yesterday? Eh, not so much. All right. I understand. <laughs> not quite awake yet. I get it. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to look at, uh, at Acts chapter 4, 13 this morning, and we're also going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And so if, uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to put one finger uh, in Acts chapter 4, and then uh, another finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Hey, if you don't have your own Bible, uh, there should be a Bible under one of the seats in front of you, or maybe behind you. Uh, so I'll just invite you to, uh, to take a second and grab one of those Bibles, either in front of you uh, or behind you. And, and listen, you can take that home if you want that. Uh, that's our gift to you, and, uh, and we want you to have a physical, actual Word of God, a Bible uh, that you can have. You can also use your app if you have a phone. Uh, you can use that as well. Uh, however you want to follow along, it's important that you have the Bible uh, as we read from it and speak from it uh, every week. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, so we're going to be in that this morning. And just to, while you're turning there, I'll kind of catch us up to where we are we're in a series of 1 Corinthians, and what we're talking about, sort of the filter through which we're approaching the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, the lens that we're looking at it through is this lens of brokenness, right? Because we see in Corinth, one of the darkest cities uh, of the Roman world, uh, really broken people, really sinful people is what I mean by that. People who are, uh, have indulged in their sinfulness, and, uh, and so they fully understand what it means to be uh, sinners. They were professional sinners. There's uh, semi-pro sinners, right? And then there's uh, amateur sinners. Uh, then there are like world-class, international-level sinners. And that's where Corinth would have ranked. They were professional sinners. They had large temples dedicated to the art of sinful indulgence and gratification. And so they understood sinners. And previously we talked about how God often sends the brightest lights into the darkest places so that they can reach the most hurting people. And people who are indulging in sin are the ones who are experiencing the most pain, emptiness, and loneliness. And that's just a fact. So God sent Paul into Corinth and he reached people and gave them the hope of the gospel and they responded. But then as they came together in a church or in a local group of believers... All that baggage came with them. <laughs> you don't just become a believer and everything is awesome, right? Everything is perfect from then on out. It's not like that. You bring into a body of believers all kinds of brokenness and baggage and stuff, and it's God's plan for your life that for the rest of your life, you are walking through that baggage, like unpacking a suitcase full of brokenness. And God's not going to make you dump out your suitcase all at once and clean it all at once. You're going to take out issue by issue, one at a time, and He's going to help you walk through that. He's not going to put uh, all of your sin on you at one time. There are issues that I've been dealing with for 25 years as a believer, and God has in His sovereignty and His providence only uh, allowed me to deal with one issue at a time that He's working with me through. And so listen, you have the rest of your lifetime to work through these. And God is kind of using this as the crucible. This is the environment, the body of believers. This is the, the environment in which God wants to make you more like Jesus Christ. So in this sort of experiment together, as long as you're in, as long as you're participating, as long as you're engaging with the body of Christ, you're going to find transformation. 
The moment you remove yourself from the body of Christ, the moment you stop participating in body life, your growth will be stunted and hindered. So that's what this series is about, 1 Corinthians. It's about dealing with broken people who are in the process of sanctification. So if you're broken, right, if you've got baggage, you're in the right place. If you came here looking for a perfect church, I'll just encourage you to find another place, right? This is not it. You will find here broken sinners. You will find here imperfect people. People who are struggling with temptation, with other issues. People who, are, who don't have it all together. And so if that's you, welcome home. Right? If that's not you, it's our prayer that you find that place for you. But Paul is telling them, he's addressed the Corinthians, and he's t- telling them, listen, we want you to be united, not divided. Last week we talked about how in their own worldly wisdom, they said, hey, I follow Paul. But another one said, well, I follow Peter. And another one said, well, I follow Apollos. And another one said, well, we just follow Jesus. And so in their worldly wisdom, we can see that they were saying, it's probably best for our church to split up into four groups. To four separate units where I follow Paul and I follow Peter and I follow Apollos and I follow Christ where all these four groups are divided. And Paul said, listen, it's never God's will for the body of Christ to be divided around a human speaker. And so Paul has championed them to say, I want unity in the body of Christ. Not just I, but God wants unity in the body of Christ. That was last week. And so Paul demonstrated to them that the wisdom of God is way bigger than their own wisdom. And his first example of the wisdom of God was the gospel. Remember last week we talked about how human wisdom is ridiculous. We would have never arrived at the execution of God's only Son in our place using worldly wisdom. None of us would have ever reasoned that out on our own. We would have never said, I'm so sinful that the only remedy for me to be united with God is the execution of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. None of us would have got there. And so Paul is saying, listen, the Gospel shows how wise God, the, the, the wisest thing God did was in giving us the Gospel, and human reasoning would have never got you there. So last week we talked all about the folly of human wisdom reviewing seven statements that the world speaks all the time, right? That all you have to do is be a good person. All of God's children are, are in the world. We, we debuffed all these sort of myths that the world says and compared it with God's wisdom. That will be online this week. And so if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back to that. So this morning, the continuation of Paul's demonstration of the difference between God's wisdom and human or worldly wisdom is this. God chooses to use people like me and you. He chooses sinners. He chooses broken people. And this blows our mind. We would have never got here. We would have never got to the gospel using human wisdom, and we would have never lined all of us up on a wall and chosen us. And that brings us to our text. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. And let's read this passage. 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to start at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now let's pray together, and then I want to unpack what this means for us as broken people. Lord Jesus, we come before You this morning, acknowledging that we are not what we used to be, thank God. Thank God we are not what we used to be, but we're not yet what we should be. And so we just acknowledge before you that we are a gathering of imperfect people who are in the process of becoming more like you, Jesus. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your mercy on us. Thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. We worship you for that. And we come to you this morning hoping and praying that you will give us a word of wisdom. That you will speak to us because we know that with just a few words you created everything we see. And so we know that just a few words from you can change our life today. And so it's in that hope, it's in that expectation that we approach you this morning. Not to hear words from me or from anyone else. Not to be uh, necessarily inspired or have tingly feelings or anything like that. But really to hear from you that your word and your Holy Spirit might minister to us. And Jesus, that you might be magnified in our meeting today. We pray that you would take all the credit and all the glory and that people would see you clearly through the preaching of your word. We pray your Holy Spirit would bring to light truth, help us to sift through what we hear and to listen, give us open ears and an open heart that your word may transform us into your likeness. And that's what we hope for in Jesus' name. Amen. God chooses us, broken people, wounded people, damaged people. God chooses to use us. I was reminded of this uh, uh, about 18 months ago. Uh, 18 months ago, I, I was in a real desperate place. I didn't feel really worthy to be in ministry any longer. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was considering, Lord, I've had a 22-year run in ministry, and, and this um, could probably be the end of it. I could resign and go into business. And I was literally in my mind thinking 18 months ago about leaving ministry, not because of any scandal or anything else, but just just really weary of ministry and having uh, gotten a year into this church plant and not seen uh, a lot of fruitfulness. We were just at a crossroads as a church. And so in the process of that, I began saying, Lord, maybe you picked the wrong guy. Maybe I'm not the one to do this. And and in that kind of time, um, the Lord really was speaking clearly to me. And one of the ways that he spoke clearly in one of my morning devotions I was reading, and he just reminded me of a humorous story that you've heard before, some of you. Um, when I was in kindergarten, I was, uh, I was chosen by the teacher uh, to be uh, the teacher's special helper. And, uh, and I carried this as like a badge of honor for all these years. And, and I was uh, selected out of 26 students. Um, as a kindergartner to come and, and move my desk right up next to the teacher. And if she needed uh, staples removed, I removed the staples. If she needed something to hand out, I was the, the right man for the job. I handed the papers out. And if, if there was something to be done, I did it. And I felt a, a sense of worth and value and significance. And I was telling my uh, new family this when Julie and I just got married over lunch one day at a Mexican restaurant in Oklahoma City, and I was sharing with the table, maybe 12 or 15 people, how special I was, and Julie busts out laughing, and she says, oh my gosh, that's what they told us to tell all the worst kids in class. In all of my teacher trainings, they said, tell the worst kids, the most rambunctious kids, the wildest kids, 
tell them that they are your special helper and move their... And she was just textbook teacher tactic, right? Bring the worst kids right there. And it just like popped my bubble and burst my... All this sort of... Uh, facade that I was this special little kindergarten kid. The kindergartners, let me, I want you to know this. You are special. If you're a special helper in your class, I want you to know that you are a special helper. And it, it does mean that Jesus loves you and that your teacher uh, is trying to love you, all right? And so I want you to know that you hear me really clearly. Julie's mom just said, oh, Julie, he is special. And she automatically tried to comfort me. Well, the Lord reminded me of that humorous situation. And I'll tell you why, because for 20 years I had been telling the Lord, listen, I'm not worthy to be called into ministry. I'm not, I think you've chosen the wrong guy. This has been a repeated prayer of mine for 20 years as I've confessed sin. Lord, don't you see the sins that I deal with? Don't you see the temptations that I struggle with? Don't you see the damage that I'm experiencing? Don't you know the brokenness from my past? Listen, I think you've chosen the wrong guy. And see, in the beginning years, I felt like God chose the right guy, that I was the right person for him to use. And then the further I went into ministry, the more I realized, listen, it's not, it's not because I had something special or unique. It's not because of my own giftedness or wisdom or cleverness or strategy that God has called me next to him. But God called me right next to him so that I couldn't wiggle away from his presence. God called me right next to him because he valued the brokenness and and he knew that the best place for Gibson was right next to him, being his teacher's helper. Listen, God values broken people. He values broken people more than he values the best. More than he values the brightest. Let me tell you this, the world will not choose most of us. We're not of nobility. We don't have six figures in the bank. We're not world uh, changer kind of people. We're not... Um, on the top 100 list, many of us, right? I don't know if there are people. Maybe you are. I'm, we're not the best looking, many of us. Right? I struggle with, I'm follically challenged. If you can't tell, I have struggle growing a head of hair. I'm not uh, the best. Many of us aren't that. But listen, praise God, He chooses us. Look at Acts chapter 4 briefly. Acts 4, this is the summary verse. If you walk away with one thing, remember this verse. Peter and John had just been used by God to heal a guy. Completely heal him. And, and, and listen, when the Pharisees and all the religious people got together, they looked at them. Verse 13, four, chapter 4, verse 13 of Acts. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that these were uneducated Common men, they were astonished. And they took note, or they recognized, that these men had been with Jesus. Listen, that's the summary. Jesus takes ordinary people. He chose fishermen from Galilee, way outside of the normal place. Usually when children went to Jerusalem in Israel, they would come from all over the country of Israel at their bar mitzvah, their 12-year-old birthday, and they would be questioned and all the rabbis would gather and they would be looking and asking questions and listening to these children's understanding and they would choose the best and they would choose the brightest of them to be their pupils. That's why Paul, as a young man, as a teenager, was chosen to study 
under Gamaliel. They were, this was the education. And if you were rejected, you were sent back out into Israel to learn the trade of your father. This is why Jesus stayed in the temple three more days and all the religious leaders were astonished at Him. But the most astonishing thing was that Jesus did not choose to stay in Jerusalem as a teenager, but He went with His parents and submitted to them and He became a builder. A guy that swings a hammer for a living. Jesus chose to identify with these common and He chose the other rejects. The other kids who might have gone to Israel who were on their bar mitzvah, who didn't know all the questions and have all the answers, but they went back and they learned the trade of their father, fishermen, tax collectors, and sinners. Jesus chose ordinary people. And so that gives us hope. That gives us great hope that Jesus chooses regular people like us. That God in His divine wisdom would choose to use us. This is a great blessing for many of us. I hope that this encourages your heart. So let me just break today's message up into two parts. God uses broken people. And the second thing is, why does God choose to use broken people? The first thing, God uses broken people. One of the misconceptions in our worldliness is that um, we think we're not good enough to be used by God. And you may have even thought to yourself, I don't have anything to offer. Uh, I'm not uh, a good speaker, or I, I'm not bold enough, or I, I, I'm not friendly person, or maybe I have this past, or maybe my addictions, or maybe my temptations, or maybe all of these things disqualify me for ministry. You may have even thought that you don't measure up. Somebody may have led you to believe that you're not worthy. You may be trapped in wrong thinking. So let me just kind of define brokenness for you. Because this is what God uses, broken people. What defines brokenness? It's a real easy way for us to describe it. You're going you're gonna to understand this as soon as I say the two words. Brokenness equals rock bottom. Right? Brokenness is just rock bottom. And, and you can use this in your life. You, you can probably look back to a place when you said, I was at rock bottom. And if you can't look back to a place and say, I, I, I was at rock bottom, maybe you can look forward to a time when you will be rock bottom. <laughs> because rock bottom is really where, where God wants us all to be at some point in our life. So many of you, you could probably say, yeah, I was at rock. At this point, I was at rock bottom. Um, and rock bottom is this. If, if, if you considered yourself to be a wise person, uh, worldly smarts, uh, you had maybe book grades, or maybe you had everything together from a, a mind sort of standpoint, and at some point in your life, your mind and your own wisdom and your own thoughtfulness um, was frustrated and it didn't work out the way you thought it would. And, and in some way, God took you to rock bottom when rock bottom for you might have been the place where you realized, I just can't think my way through this anymore. I can't reason my way out of this. And so you relied on your own wisdom and your own smarts and God brought you to a place where rock bottom for you was, I, I just can't, this doesn't work. It's not logical. My mind can't fix the problems I'm experiencing. Some of you know what that kind of rock bottom means. Some of you, um, you have experienced rock bottom in the fact that you may have relied on wealth, where you just kind of bought your way in and out of happiness and life and vacations and everything you wanted. You were able just to finance it and everything sort of worked out. But, but in your heart, you realize this is not scratching where I'm itching. The more money I make, the more stuff I possess, it doesn't satisfy me. And so in the midst of everything, you realize you have nothing. And that's brought you to rock bottom. That's brought you to a place where you desperately need 
Jesus. That's rock bottom. For some of you, you've been addicted. You've suffered from self-inflicted wounds and maybe things that you've done or taken or been involved in. And, and you've got to a place where you can't get out of that. And you're in a hole. Uh, Psalm 40 describes, I was in a pit and I waited for the Lord and He drug me out of the miry clay, out of the pit. And for you, that was literally rock bottom. You were in a pit and there's nowhere to go when you hit bedrock. That's our prayer for most people if they're lost. They would come to their senses of rock bottomness. Others of you, you've been wounded and somebody else is the afflictor and you're holding this pain in your heart. Maybe somebody has wounded you or afflicted you or in some way and you can't find your way out of this despair or this sadness or this depression or this hopelessness. And yet for you, that's rock bottom. Rock bottom is when you get to the end of yourself and all you can do is see God is your only hope. Now, if you've never been to rock bottom, it is not a pleasant place to be, right? But it is the greatest place to be when you behold Jesus from a place of rock bottomness. That's what it means to be broken. And listen, God doesn't choose you based on who you are. He chooses those who are at rock bottom. So if that's you today, there is hope for you. There is hope for you. God doesn't choose the best and the brightest and the wealthiest and the best looking people. He chooses those who are broken. Just look at the examples of Scripture. If you were to look at Matthew chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to refer to it. But in Matthew chapter 1, we go through the lineage of Jesus. And it doesn't take you very many names to realize, hey, that guy didn't have it all together. Hey, there's a lady named Rahab, and she didn't have it all together. And there's somebody named Boaz. And didn't he marry Ruth? And wasn't she from Moab? And, and what about this guy? And what about that guy? And what about David? You remember God used David. And David was this guy who was, um, he was the, matter of fact, you remember in the choosing of David? Samuel went to uh, David's house to his father Jesse. And he, he had him line up all of his boys. And the Lord told Samuel, he said, listen, don't choose based on what? Don't choose by the way he looks on the outside. For I have rejected him. Man looks at the outside, but what? God looks at the heart. So he lined up all of his sons. And David wasn't even in the cut. He was one of his sons. And Jesse didn't even bring him. That's rock bottom, right? I mean, if your dad lines up all the sons and you're, you're not even included, there's six of them, and one by one Samuel is looking at him and he's, Asking the Lord, is this the one? No, not him. Is this the one? No, not him. And then finally he gets to me and says, don't you have any more sons? Oh, yeah, I got one other, but it's just David. And he's out in the field taking care of the sheep. Man, I, listen, that's rock bottom. When as a father, you don't even recognize your, your only son. So he brings him in and, and Samuel, the Lord says, yes, this is the one I've chosen. Listen, we think of David as King David, as Royal David, as David has slain his tens of thousands, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, we think of David in this exalted way. Why? But that's not how he was at first. Listen, he wasn't even chosen. God chooses broken Peter, people. Peter and John were the example of that. And just piggybacking off this, God uses broken people. Brokenness is rock bottom. God uses broken people to reach broken people. 
God uses broken people to reach broken people. I, I'm fascinated with the story of Jim Elliot. You might have heard of Elizabeth Elliot, a great family movie. If you want to give teenagers, is a book a movie called The Edge of the Spear. Uh, it's a great book, a movie. It's a book and a movie, uh, Beyond the Gates of Splendor. Uh, all these books by Elizabeth Elliot and uh, and made into movies. These are excellent sources of material that will teach your kids godly, godly uh, values about a man who sold out. Jim Elliot was um, committed to reaching an unreached tribe in the Amazon. Uh, and as he and his missionary friends would reach them, these people were known as um, they were murderers. They were they would kill people. They would they would rival tribes would rise up, and they were they were very uh, violent people. And Jim Elliot was killed uh, trying to reach this Amazon tribe. Had his kids, had his family, had his wife, everybody out in the mission field. Just like the missionary that we pray for, uh, the, the Burkhalters, where they're in the Amazons, uh, taking river trips two or three days down the river to reach unreached tribes. This was Jim Elliot back in the 50s. And after Jim was killed uh, by men of that tribe, his family didn't leave the mission field. They, they went and they moved into, they moved closer to that tribe. And you know what, what dawned on me during that? And what dawned on Elizabeth as she writes? Is that their brokenness gave them grounds to reach the broken people. Because you know who else was in that tribe? Wives and children who had lost husbands and fathers. The very thing that God inflicted them with was the very thing God used them to reach the lost and broken tribe. And now there are believers from that tribe. The tribe experienced many conversions, repentance and brokenness. And that was the, uh, the breaking point, was the, the execution of Jim Elliot. God took their brokenness and used it to reach people who were broken with the gospel. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But the second thing I want you to see is why does God choose broken people? Why doesn't he just choose the best and the brightest and the smartest and the, the most faithful, the most gifted? Why does God choose broken people? There's four values that we see in Scripture that God reveals about himself. The first one is, and it just gives us insight into why God chooses to use broken people. Number one, God desires max glory. Listen, God is passionate for his own glory. God is this magnificent, radiant being that just exudes glory and he is very protective and jealous he wants his glory to be known he wants to reveal himself he wants people to see his glory and his beauty and he chooses broken people why because god is most magnified through those you remember the movie the natural right he breaks a sweet bat and he takes the little kid's bat and when he takes the kid's bat, it's like the stubby little bat, and he, he uses it. And that demonstrates the power of, uh, what's his name, Robert Redford, right? His character. When he, he smashes the ball with his bat, it wasn't the bat, it was the, it was the, the batter. Right? God chooses to use weaker vessels because they give him max glory. The second principle that we see why God chooses to use broken people is God values maximum dependence. He chooses those who will know their source of strength lies in Him. He chooses those who are max dependent on Him. Those who will call upon Him, not just once, and not just when they're desperate, but those who daily yield in dependence to the Father. 
Listen, our sin nature, our flesh cries out, I can do it on my own. I don't need help from anybody. How many of your two-year-olds say that, or four-year-olds say that, or six-year-olds, or maybe your husband says that, I don't know. But, But how many of us have said that in our own heart? I don't need help. I can do this on my own. That sin nature, that stubbornness, is not what God values. He values the one who says, I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. Your best place, your sweet spot, the spot for you for optimal performance is in walking in close dependence on God. This quote will never get old to me, hopefully. Uh, By Daniel Henderson, he says, Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. And here's the truth. You never have to tell God, I don't need you. You you never have to say those words to God. All you have to do is not pray. And he gets the message loud and clear, right? Just stop praying for two days. And you've efficiently, succinctly told God, I have zero need for you. I can do this on my own. Uh, I read this week, great quote. All of us are about three days away from being on the front of a tabloid, right? All of us, it really just takes all of us about three days to be uh, completely scandalized by our own behavior. And most of us are on day two already, right? I mean, listen, we can't go very long without needing God, being in utter dependence on who God is. God values max dependence. Third thing, God desires maximum obedience. God desires max obedience. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you were to look at the life of Moses, there's one phrase that will stick out to you when you study the, the life of Moses. And Moses did exactly as the Lord told him. Almost 70 times that phrase is used, speaking of Moses. And Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded him. Amazing, Moses' level of obedience. God speaks, he reacts in obedience. The fourth thing, God seeks out max devotion. Maximum devotion. God seeks out max devotion. A whole heart is what it means. Um, The Hebrew word shalem, very close to shalom, peace, but shalem means whole heart. It means wholeness or one. And it gives us the picture of a unified heart. Listen, God seeks a unified, whole, devoted heart. Do you remember the great passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 16? For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is whole toward Him. Other translations describe whole hearts as those that are fully committed, blameless, completely His, or that completely belong to Him. Listen, God desires your max devotion, your loyalty, your zeal, your love, your jealousy for God, and He doesn't value a divided heart. We're going to get to this later in Corinthians because he's going to say, listen, those of you who are married, those of you who have all these things going on, your loyalties are divided. Your devotion is split up. That's why Paul has great warning for those who are wealthy because he says, listen, your your heart will run toward other things and you're going to be less devoted. Israel, the, the country, is split into two. There's the north, which is wealthy with lots of resources and not lots of natural land resources but as you sort of work your way downward there uh, it becomes desert and they have a saying in that land that if you want to be wealthy you go north if you want to be wise you go south the way of the south the way of the desert the way of poverty the way of um, 
Desolation is where people discover an intimacy with God. Jesus, when He was tempted, where did He go? South to the Judean wilderness. All the money was north. All the wisdom was south. That's the way the common people describe Israel. God seeks out max devotion. The idea is that God wants your wholehearted devotion and loyalty. So how do we apply this message? Let me just give you a couple of quick takeaways for us. Number one, redeem your brokenness. You're broken, you're sad, you have addictions, you have struggles, you have pains, you've been to rock bottom, and some of you who are holding on to that sorrow or that pain, listen, redeem it like you would a coupon, right? The the coupon says, uh, redeem this for something, right? Trade it in. There's a great old uh, praise song that says, I'm trading my sorrows, right? I'm trading my shame. I'm trading them all for the joy of the Lord. Redeem your brokenness, your pain, your sadness, your affliction, your addictions, and your struggles. Give them over to God and trade them in for victory and joy and usefulness. What else are you holding on to it for? Has God afflicted you and made you sad? What victory is there in hanging on to that sadness? Instead, redeem it. Make it useful to the Lord. Because who will God send you to? Those who are lost and sad. You've lost somebody. Who will God send you to? Someone who has lost somebody. You're addicted. God has delivered you from that. You've reached rock bottom. Instead of hanging on to your experiences, who will God send you to? Those who are lost and addicted. You are... uh, you're from a background of moralistic, perfectionistic self-righteousness, right? You just you felt like you had it all together and God brought you to a point of rock bottomness where you realize my self-righteousness is a filthy rag to God. My, my good works were nothing to Him. Instead of hanging on to that, who will God send you to? He will send you to self-righteous, moralistic, perfectionistic, religious people so that they may know that, that they need Jesus. That their own self-righteousness won't take them. Who can God use you to reach? Those who are most like you. Those who are most like you. Some of you say, well, what if I'm not broken? What if I've never experienced real brokenness? Well, first of all, you should, in some ways, thank God. Thank God for that. But in other ways, you should evaluate. Why aren't I rock bottom? Why haven't I reached a point where I need Jesus? Some of you, that should scare you a little bit. Is there, am I blind to something? Is there something I'm missing? Have I not taken my sin seriously enough? Have I not examined God's holiness enough? How do I compare to Him? Why am I not rock bottom? The second thing you should do, not just redeem your brokenness, but change your mind. Change the way you think. You might be thinking, God is, God is seeking my perfectionism. He wants morally... He wants me just to live a moral life. Or God just needs gifted people. Listen, change your mind about that. You can be just as used by God in your brokenness as you are available and wholeheartedly devoted to Him. God loves a heart that's wholly dedicated to Him. Redeem your brokenness, change your mind. And number three, understand brokenness. Brokenness is different than just willful sinfulness. It's not the same thing. If you're just a willful, stubborn sinner, that's not brokenness. And that's just 
That's just a prideful, temper tantrum kid in the corner that won't give up their toy or whatever. That sort of holding on to your sin is not the same as brokenness. Well, I think I think we understand brokenness, many of us. But if you still need help understanding that, um, I'll pray for you that you hit rock bottom. You may not want that. But brokenness is a good place. It's a realization that you're powerless and that life is meaningless outside of Jesus Christ. Understand brokenness and understand that it's redeeming. God can use that. The mission team that was here from Tennessee asked me a few questions. And one of the questions they asked me was, what has surprised you the most about your time here? As you've been planting churches, what's surprised you the most? And just, I thought about it for a couple minutes, and I said, I think how unimpressive it's all been. <laughs> no one would look at this and be like, oh, no wonder. Right? No one listens to my sermons and are like, oh my gosh, I've got to listen to more of his sermons. No one is is saying how amazing our stage decorations are or how amazing our our worship experience is or how amazing the leadership is. If you look at it, you're really quite unimpressed with us. And I'm okay with that. I want you to be more impressed with my Savior than you are with me. I want you to be more impressed with who's behind the worship leader, who the worship leader is worshiping, than how well choreographed the music and the timing and the chingly chimes thing are. I mean, those things are awesome, but we want you to be impressed with Jesus, not our PowerPoint backgrounds, right? I mean, we want you to see Him, not us. I've just been really impressed by how vanilla the work of God has been among us. It's just routine. Holy Spirit changing lives one at a time. Listen, no one's going to write books about our explosive growth, or our amazing strategies. And I'm okay with that. Because God values maximum glory for Himself, max dependence, max devotion, all those things. I have to close with a story from a friend of mine named Matt. Uh, Love the story of Matt. Matt had a a very spiritual heritage. Uncles that were uh, pastors. Uh, sort of grown up in this very strong religious heritage. Uh, Matt had every advantage, spiritually speaking. Uh, he knew Scripture. And yet he never reached a point of rock-bottomness and, and, and faith in God. God wasn't his everything. And it took many years for Matt to get there. But in January, I posted as just a statement... Uh, for the life of me, I can't remember what that statement is right now. I posted something. You can just trust me on that. Uh, and it said something to the effect that, um, that he who conceals his sins will not prosper. That's what it was. It was Proverbs. He who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Just the Lord put it on my heart, reading it in my daily devotion, and I put it out there. A couple weeks later, um, you posted that for me. And then I didn't hear from Matt for like a month. And I didn't realize what happened, but it just went dark. And so finally, I, he was on my heart about a month later because I posted this in December. It was January, and the Lord put him on my heart. And so I, I contacted his sister, and I said, hey, what happened to Matt? And, um, and he said, she said, well, in January, he confessed to everybody, to his wife and to his family, to everybody, that he'd been abusing prescription pills. 
He was in the Navy. He had been injured. They prescribed him these uh, heavy pain meds, and, and just in the process, he became addicted. Good kid, good background. Matt was left with an addiction and nothing else, and he entered into a rehab. After I posted that verse, and, uh, man, it broke my heart. So I just began to write him letters, and I began to pray for him. And I, He found himself in a place called Renewal Ranch, uh, a gospel-centered addiction specialty place in Arkansas. And as I kept up with Matt, I, something changed in his life. Matt hit rock bottom, and I started to think about uh, all these families that uh, begin to follow Matt. And uh, one family started to write him notes, and, uh, and their children began to uh, write him notes and to pray for him. And uh, so many people began to believe through Matt's rock-bottomness and his confession that Jesus was all he needed. And Matt's passion and his wholeheartedness toward God I had to take this screenshot about a month ago, and you can uh, you can barely see it, but it's this, this sticky note that a seven-year-old uh, girl wrote, and I'll just read it to you. It says, I love you, Matt. I prayed to the Lord. He answered me. This is a little child. This little child learned faith from Matt's broken. And the mom said, uh, here's a sweet note that my Anna wrote to my brother. Renewal Ranch was not just for him, but it has changed our entire family. Funny how God works. We heard a powerful quote during the chapel service at his Renewal Ranch yesterday. Your brokenness doesn't disqualify you. In fact, it single-handedly qualifies you more. Rock bottom is a good place to be because the Lord Jesus shines brightly through those who have found the bottom and have looked up and put their hope in Him. And I hope that if you're broken today, that God has encouraged you. That this is not the end for you. This is it's not a place of hopelessness. He hasn't put you on the shelf never to be used again. He can redeem your pain. And many people will come to faith in Christ as a result of your brokenness. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that in your wisdom you don't choose the best and the brightest, but the broken. And it confounds the world. The world can't explain why you choose people like me to be your mouthpiece. We're quite unimpressive as a group of people. Let us give you max glory for the way in which you have redeemed 
a strange people to yourself. We praise you for the mystery of your wisdom. I pray that you would use this message to reach those who are at rock bottom, that they would look to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who through the scorning of the cross and enduring its shame, you endured that pain for them. And you were raised to life, that they might find life in you. Thank you for the words of the song that my life is hid with Christ on high. And Christ my Savior and my God. Let us sing to you in gratitude this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.